A warm welcome to all of you for attending the fourth Walter Stibbs uh, lecture. This lecture will be delivered by Professor David Reitzer from the Caltech and Florida. Thank you very much, Joss. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. I think Joss exaggerates a little bit, but I'm, I'm happy that I was able to come and uh, uh, talk to you about what I think is a very, very exciting uh, new branch of science. I'll point out that actually I started life as an astronomer. When I was in high school, I built my first telescope, actually, a homemade telescope. And I went to Northwestern to become an astronomer, and I took physics classes, and I got enamored by physics. So, so I'm going to tell you a, a scientific detective story, and it's a really interesting one. It's one that starts 1.3 billion years ago. And by the way, can everybody hear me in the back of the room? I want to make sure the audio is good. Good. Excellent. All right. And it's a story that uh, involves these two entities on the screen. Uh, they're black holes. Um, we're going to fast forward through much of that 1.3 billion years to about a, a hundred years ago, actually 102 years ago, when Albert Einstein postulated his remarkable theory of general relativity. And that's my favorite picture of Albert Einstein. It shows that he was kind of a character uh, also. Uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity was uh, remarkable in that it completely upended the way we think about gravity. So let me start with the following. Before there was general relativity, Einstein even revolutionized the world with something called special relativity. And I, I apologize, there are going to be a few equations in here, but you don't really need to dig into them too deeply. So the first thing about general relativity or special relativity that you need to know is the postulate E equals mc squared. This may be the most famous equation in physics. And what it says is that energy and mass are equivalent. And, and the proportionality constant is this quantity C, the speed of light, which turns out to be a very important constant in nature. All right. The second equation, the one below, x prime equals x times all that stuff, in, or gamma times all that stuff in parentheses, is probably less known to you. But it's equally important because it says that there's no preferred reference frames or, or natural frames of measurement, and there's no preferred time coordinate system, that space and time are interchangeable. So special relativity, Matter and energy are interchangeable. Space and time are interchangeable. All right. General relativity goes one step further. The equations are much more complex. This is the equation for general relativity. And there's a huge amount of physics encoded in that equation. On the left hand, it's a tensorial equation. I don't, I'm not going to explain that in any great detail. On the left hand side, that quantity g mu nu is space and time. That's geometry. All right. And on the right hand side is that quantity t mu nu. That's matter and energy. And there's this, these constants. And by the way, the, historically, people use G for gravitational, Newtonian gravitational constant. This. So these are not the same constants. Just a, it's just a historical artifact. This guy right here turns out to be a very important constant. All right, 8 pi G over C to the fourth. That is a very tiny number. And you'll get a sense for how tiny that is later on in the lecture. But what this equation says all right, is remarkable. It, it basically takes matter and energy, which special relativity unified, and space and time, which special relativity unified, and brings them all together. So general relativity mixes them all up, okay? Space and time equals matter and energy. Geometry equals mass. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't really mean that. What it means is that geometry, space and time, the space we live in, the clocks we watch, are influenced by matter, and the space influences matter. So I'll make that more 
prescriptive in the following way. So this is a picture that actually people use to describe general relativity. And I want you to start by ignoring the green grid and just focus on the sun and the earth. All right. Newton, over 400 years ago, told us that two objects that have mass are attracted to each other through this universal law called gravitation. You could write it down mathematically. It said that if the, uh, the force of attraction is proportional to one mass or the other mass. It's inversely proportional to the distance between them, actually the square of the distance between them. All right. But Newton's law, and that's, by the way, I should point out that that's a wonderful law. It explains how the uh, Earth orbits around the sun, how planets orbit, how the solar system works, why we can launch satellites into space. It does a remarkable job of explaining gravity. It has one fundamental flaw, and the fundamental flaw, and even Newton himself knew this, was that the communication is instantaneous, that, that uh, the sun and the Earth know each other there. If I were to separate them by the entire diameter of the, the, the size of the universe, they would still know each other there. So gravity communicates instantaneously. This violates special relativity, which Einstein in the early 1900s said, you can't violate special relativity. The fastest, the, the most absolute speed limit we have is the speed of light. Okay, so how does Einstein fix that with general relativity? He does the following. He says that what is actually happening here is there's not this magical force that's connecting the sun and the earth. There is actually an influence of, of geometry. So what's happened is when I put this massive object like the sun in empty space, it changes the nature of space. It changes the geometry of space. Space is no longer this flat grid that you're used to when you take geometry classes. The, curvature, the, the space warps, the curvature bends, so you get this dimple. And what, what the Earth is doing is it doesn't know directly that the sun is there, but it sees a local geometry that has this bowl-shaped nature. So if I were to, take, if I were to think the Earth as a marble and roll it around, it would just roll around and around and around here. So it's not reacting to the fact that there's mass. It's reacting to the fact that the geometry has changed due to the mass. Said another way, general relativity tells us the following thing. Matter tells space how to curve, and space tells matter how to move. All right, so that's the equivalence. So, all right, so that's everything you need to know about general relativity. But I need to go one step further, and that's gravitational waves. So let's talk about gravitational waves. Where do you get gravitational waves? When you have objects that are moving, that are accelerating, such as the Earth going around this, the sun, or the moon going around the Earth, all right? The fact that they're moving, they're accelerating, they're actually radiating gravity in the force of gravitational waves. So this ripple, this grid that you're seeing is actually perturbing, and there are ripples in space-time. Now, I can't show you this in three dimensions. I can only show you this in two dimensions. But this is a nice cartoon that gives you an example of what's happening. So these are two black holes. This is an artist's conception of these two black holes that are orbiting around. And you'll see a number of things. First, they're getting closer together. The reason they're getting closer together is that they're radiating energy in the form of gravitational waves. Eventually, they collide, they form a bigger black hole, and they propagate out this burst of gravitational waves. All right, now, you might be worried that the Earth is eventually going to uh, orbit itself into the sun, and the answer is yes, that would happen, but it will take trillions and trillions and trillions of years. It's a very slow process. But when I have two massive objects like black holes, which are very compact, that process is accelerated and can happen very fast. All right, so. All right, this sort of gives you an idea that when I have, so the take-home point from that slide is when I have two objects that are orbiting around one another, all right, they're radiating gravity in the form of these ripples in space-time, the gravitational waves, and that causes their orbit to decay a little bit. All right, 
Now, as a physicist, as, as Josh said, I'm, an, I'm a laser physicist, experimental physicist. I want to know how to measure them. What, what am I actually going to try and measure? Well, that picture that I showed you, while, while nice in concept, doesn't really give you a physical sense of what you're trying to measure. So what are you trying to measure? What you're actually trying to measure is something called a strain. Engineers might be familiar with this. Certainly people who have taken physics are. A strain is a change in length per unit length. So suppose I have an aluminum bar and I were to press on the aluminum bar. Because the atoms in the aluminum bar will get a little bit closer together, the bar will shrink. Okay, now I have to put a lot of force on the bar to even shrink it a little bit. All right, but that's what a strain is. The, the change in length is proportional to the length. All right, so suppose I were to generate magically a gravitational wave behind the board and I were to send it out towards all of you. What would you see? Here's what you would see. You would see, actually, it turns out that there are two kinds of gravitational wave. We call them polarizations. All right, but one of them, let's look at this one because this is easy. If I pick an arbitrary point in space where those two black lines cross, you'll see that in one direction, the space is stretching while at the same time it's compressing in the other direction. And then as I go another half cycle, I wait for a little bit. The, the compressed part now stretches and the stretch part now compresses. Okay, and it's, uh, it's true for both of these different polarizations here. But you can also see that if I'm very close to that crossing point, which again is arbitrary, I can pick any point in space, uh, that the stretching and compressing is quite small. But if I go out towards the end, the, the stretching and compressing is much, much larger. So this immediately tells you as an experimentalist, what you want to try and do is measure distances, and I'll tell you how tiny those distances will be in a moment, uh, over large baselines, over all large L's. Okay. So yeah, here, exaggerated, you can see that this guy close, this arrow close to the crossing point is, is not moving much, whereas this guy is. All right, so, so that's what we're after. We're trying to measure a strain. And if the wave is propagating towards you, the strain is perpendicular to that. So, so if the wave is coming this way, the stretching and compressing is transverse. So if I were to put a ruler there, right, the, the, literally the ruler embeds itself in space and it stretches and compresses. Here's the problem. All right, and the problem Einstein himself realized. So this is an excerpt of a paper that where he first postulated gravitational waves. And this quantity A is what I've just told you. It's the amplitude of the wave. It's, the gra it's this delta L over L, the strain. All right, I don't uh, read German, but I do know how to do Google Translate. So I went to Google Translate. And if you read this last line, it basically tells you that you shouldn't even bother looking for these things. It says, then A must have a virtually vanishing value in all imaginable cases. So when Albert Einstein in 1916 tells you, don't even bother looking for them because you won't find them, he's probably right. And in fact, he was right. And here's, here's the challenge. How do I make a gravitational wave? Well, I've already sort of given you a hint, right? I take two massive objects and I spin them around one another. I put them in orbit around one another. Let's try and do that experiment in a laboratory. All right, so this is a mad scientist. He's going to take two 100 or 1,000 kilogram masses. He's going to separate them oh, by about a meter. And he's going to spin them around 1,000 times a second. Now, this is why this guy's crazy. No one would actually want to do this experiment in their laboratory because the things would fly apart and kill you. But all right, he, didn't, he did it. How big is that strain? So ask yourself, you can calculate how big the gravitational wave strain is there? And the answer is it's 10 to the minus 35. So that's 0 0.34 zeros and a 1. All right, that is an incredibly small number, and any experimental physicist will tell you 
astronomer will tell you, you shouldn't even bother looking for this. You should go find another field of research because you're going to be wasting your time. All right. So you might say, all right, it's hopeless. Let's give up. But nature, and I've sort of hinted at this earlier, actually gives you a source that might be detectable. And let's do the same experiment, but let's let nature do it for us. So I'm going to come back to this later on, but let's talk about well, right now. I want to sort of uh, introduce the concept of a, of a neutron star. A neutron star is a compact core of a supernova. Um, for astrophysical reasons, they tend to be about one and a half solar masses. So when a star goes through its life cycle and gets to the end of its life, uh, it gravitationally collapses. Most of the star blows, blows itself apart, but there's a core left that's very ultra-dense, made up of neutrons. So these are ultra-ultra-dense stars. So the diameter of these uh, objects is about 20 kilometers or 25 kilometers. So they're very, very compact. Well, they can lock themselves in binary orbits, just like the Earth and the Sun, and they can do that same dance. All right? And if they do that dance, you can do the same calculation. And you get 10 to the minus 21. So that's 0 0.20 zeros and a 1. So that's delta L over L of 10 to the minus 21. That's still an awful small number. And the first time one hears about LIGO, the first time I heard about LIGO, I, you know, without studying it, I thought it's a bit crazy. But it turns out it's not. And I'll tell you why we can do this. So, so what I now want to do is tell you th about our detector. So this is how we make these measurements and why we can make a measurement that, that's that precise. Okay. Um, and I should point out, actually, let me put a exclamation point on this. If you were to try and measure the distance from the sun to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, which is about four light years away, so that's a huge, that's the amount of time it takes light to travel, uh, so that's a huge distance, um, we would be able to measure, if you measured with that precision, we'd be able to do it to better than the width of a human hair. All right, so that tells you the level of precision that you're, you're after here. All right, so how do you do it? All right, well, we do it with something called an interferometer. We actually have two of them. Uh, one of our interferometers is in Hanford, Washington. The other is in uh, Livingston, Louisiana. Uh, this is in the northwestern United States and the southeast. And as Josh said, I work at Caltech. We work closely with MIT. And we have a lot of collaborators that form a broader collaboration called the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, of which Australia has a, a number of universities and has made some very important contributions that I'll come to later. All right. So this is the Hanford interferometer. I'm sorry, this is the Livingston interferometer. Uh, and just to give you a sense of scale, there's a car. This building houses uh, a laser. It ha houses vacuum system. It houses some offices. All right. Then there's a big tube that connects this to another building down there. And the distance between that tube is, and the, 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 the two buildings is four kilometers. All right, so that's the L in our delta L over L is four kilometers. All right, so you can do a little bit of math in your head, all right, and you can ask yourself, okay, I want to measure something that's about uh, four, over four kilometer baseline, and I have a delta L over L of 10 to the minus 21. What kind of displacement, in other words, how precise do I have to measure that delta L? And the answer is, is about 10 to the minus 18 meters. Put that in perspective, 10 to the minus 18 meters is about 1 1,000th the diameter of the nucleus of an atom. Not an atom, but the nucleus of an atom. So these are very, very tiny distances that we're trying to measure. And what is literally happening is that the space in between, there's something here called a beam splitter, and a mirror here is shrinking and 
uh, growing as a gravitational wave passes by that tiny amount of a fraction of a proton. All right, so that's, that's uh, Livingston. This is Hanford. Uh, they're identical interferometers, and I literally mean identical. They were designed to be exactly the same. Uh, I will leave it to you to think about why we, have two, why we need two interferometers. You'll get hints as we go through the rest of the talk, but uh, suffice it to say, we, we, we absolutely need to have two interferometers to be able to make these measurements. All right, so I've used this word interferometer. I should tell you what an interferometer is. All right, so this it is a nice cartoon illustration of, of an interferometer, and, and the components are as follows. All right, this is a laser. All right, it's that little cylinder there is a laser. This is something called a beam splitter. All right, so what happens is when laser light, when a laser beam comes, it's divided into two equal components such that half the light goes up this way. We'll call this the Y arm. This is sort of like a coordinate system. And, and the half the light goes this way. This is the X arm. These circles up here are actually mirrors. In reality, they reflect all of the light back. The light comes back and hits the beam splitter and recombines. And because the light is coherent, in other words, the laser light is basically produces very pure wavelengths of light, uh, and we can control the distance between this, our, this beam splitter here and this beam, uh, the beam splitter and this mirror right here, all right, we can very accurately measure what the displacement is. So you can now see, if you go back to that illustration that I had earlier where the space is stretching and compressing, all right, you can sort of see that an interferometer is a perfect thing to measure a gravitational wave because what we hope to see happen, and let me just do the, uh, 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 the experiment for you, is all right, we start with laser light. We split it. So we've color-coded the wavelengths. So the yellow light goes up the X-arm. It gets reflected. Uh, and those wavelengths are very precisely known. Light is a very, very good ruler. It's the best ruler we have. It comes back, recombines. Now, the light... We've set the distance so that all the light come, interferes in this direction. This is called constructive interference. But as a gravitational wave passes, it's going to do that stretching and compressing. One arm's going to stretch, the other arm's going to compress. And it's going to dynamically change the interference pattern. So we'll be able to read out the gravitational wave. This, in some, this is basically a, it's a photodiode. It's like you would find in your DVD player, or your CD player. Basically, it just records the laser light and turns it into photocurrent. So what's happening here is that as the gravitational wave passes, because it's changing the length of those arms dynamically, it's changing the light takes longer to travel in one case, shorter in the other case, the interference pattern changes, and we record that interference pattern on the photodiode. Now, in the movie here, or in this cartoon simulation here, the interference looks like it's changing by a full wavelength. Uh, and in fact, in our case, the wavelengths are about one micron, so about one one thousand or one one hundredth the width of a human hair. Uh, in reality, it's actually a trillion times smaller than that. So we're we're sensitive to shifts that are a trillion times smaller than I showed you here. All right. Now that's the basic idea. Let me tell you why this is so horrifically complicated. And the reason is because there are many, many, many other things on the planet that conspire to change those distances between uh, the, the beam splitter and the test masses, all right? Those are called noises, and we spend a great, great deal of our time to try and understand those noises and try and beat them down. First, most fundamental source of noise is called seismic noise, all right? So the mirrors are attached to the Earth. Now, we go to great lengths to keep them unattached to the Earth. In fact, they're only attached by 
uh, basically glass, pieces of glass fiber. But the Earth moves, and it moves actually pretty loud at, at one hertz, at a frequency of one hertz. It's moving a fraction of a micron. All right, so that's about a trillion times larger than we can tolerate. So we have to isolate the mirrors from that, and we do that using a couple of tricks. We use basically active seismic isolation. Uh, the analogy that I would give is if you drive a high-end car like a, a Mercedes-Benz or an Audi, you know, if you drive it over a bumpy road, you, if you're sitting in there, you're, you're actually not moving at all. Your seat is nice and, 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 and uh, stationary, and it's because it has active seismic isolation that's reading out the bumps. We do the same thing uh, in LIGO. We only do it a, we do it a thousand times better than, than Mercedes-Benz does it. Okay. Uh, the next thing you have to worry about is the laser itself. This is one thing that people you know, who, who don't work with lasers don't think about too often. Everybody thinks as lasers is just, you know, ultra pure light. It turns out it's not, uh, and that even the best lasers, you have to work to stabilize their wavelength and frequency, because if that changes, that looks to the interferometer like a gravitational wave signal. Right, the next thing you have to worry about is really something subtle and fundamental, and that's why I like LIGO so much, because it touches upon quant something called quantum mechanics, which is a different branch of physics, but one that's very relevant to LIGO. And that has to do with the fact that light, like most things in nature, actually is quantum at its most fundamental level. So we have photons. All right? And there's a theorem uh, uh, about light that basically says that the, the arrival time of the photons is not predictable. It's not deterministic. It's actually random. And that random arrival time when light comes back and recombines at the beam splitter can actually lead you to believe that you might have seen a fluctuation from length where it's just the fluctuation from the arrival time of the photons. All right. That's called something called shot noise. All right. There's another side to that, and that's called radiation pressure noise. So light carries momentum. Photons, even though they're, you know, they're very, very you know, tiny energetic particles, per se, they can actually impart momentum to the mirror. So they can push the mirror. So as the, the, these photons randomly arrive on the mirrors, they can actually move the mirrors around. And that displacement, remember I said we're trying to measure something to the, to the level of you know, a fraction, a tiny fraction, one one-thousandth the diameter of a nucleus of an atom, turns out light can move the mirror that level. Uh, then there's the mirrors themselves actually move because we operate at a finite temperature. This is a subtle bit of uh, physics called statistical mechanics, but it turns out that anything that has a finite temperature all right, has motion associated with it. And in this case, it's the surfaces of the mirrors themselves that are actually moving at a much smaller level than what we're trying to detect. But it turns out that there's Another funny little part of statistical mechanics that says that you can't confine your energy into very, very narrow pieces of the, uh, uh, of the spectrum. And so we work very hard to, to make mirrors that are, that are very pure, very high Q. Uh, and then finally, uh, there's residual gas scattering. So uh, remember I said there was a, uh, a long tube that connected the corner station to the end station, so where the beam splitter is to where the end mirrors are. Well. You'll see in a minute what's in, in between that, and the answer is nothing. So we have to take all of the gas out, because if, if the light hits a molecule, the molecule will actually change the character of the light. It will delay the light. And that's, again, something else that looks like it could be a gravitational signal. So, and there are a thousand other things that we worry about, too, but these are the main ones, okay? All right, so how do we, how do we take all that stuff and put it all together? So this is a picture of inside the LIGO 
uh, corner station at Hanford, uh, and so the laser is right there. All of this big, massive metallic tubes and, and cylinders that you see are vacuum systems. All of our mirrors are inside a vacuum. All of our laser isn't inside a vacuum, but it's inside a very clean environment. Uh, and you see some of the seismic isolation systems there that keep the, uh, uh, the vibrations out. There are seismometers all over the place. So there's a, there's a huge, complex array of, of equipment that goes in here. And this is what the laser looks like. Um, so the laser is down here. All right, so the beam splitter will be right there. And you'll notice uh, the laser is in an ultra-clean room. So we need, why are we in an ultra-clean room? Because the power of this laser is about 200 watts, which doesn't sound like much until you realize that it's a very tiny beam. Right? And if dust gets on the laser, all right, it can actually destroy the mirrors, destroy the laser. So, so the, the people who work with this have to wear these uh, uh, clean room suits to be able to work with uh, the word laser. So there's no, no, nobody has any skin exposed at all, because even skin can actually cause problems. Hair too. All right. Here are the mirrors. The mirrors are actually remarkable, and I, I wish I could spend a lot of time telling you about them because I'm a laser and optics person. I get very, very excited. All right, they are made of pure fusilica, the same kind of fusilica that goes into optical fibers that carries your voice uh, across the uh, Pacific Ocean or to your to your neighbor. They're ultra ultra pure glass. They are 40 kilograms. All right, so that's about 90 pounds, I guess, in uh, in weight. We want them to be heavy to minimize the amount of pushing on the that the photons give to it, uh, and they're polished to an exquisite exquisite level of perfection. So they're polished such that their surface figure is about, um, let's see, it would be 0.15 angstrom. So, so it's about a, hyd uh, a hydrogen atom. All right, the surface would deviate by less than a hydrogen atom diameter over that, over that aperture right there. And then we have to take that mirror and we have to hang it. So one of the ways we uh, get rid of the seismic noise is that we suspend the mirrors on glass fibers, all right? And we have to make those fibers ourselves. So there's a huge, huge amount of engineering uh, in, uh, in LIGO. In fact, I'm very proud of the fact that our engineering team won a, an award from the Optical Society of America for, uh, for making this detector work. Okay, all right. So I told you about the vacuum system, all right? The vacuum system is very important. And just to put a, you know, sort of a sense of a scale on this, the LIGO vacuum system has almost 10,000 cubic meters of nothing because we pump it out. Uh, it's got 30,000 square meters of surface area. So this is the vacuum tube itself, all right? And there's four kilometers of this going this way. This is the one in Louisiana, four kilometers the other way. You can't go out and buy these things. You have to make them yourself. So we hired a, a very, very good engineering firm that did vacuum systems. And they actually have to spiral weld these tubes. So this is a really, again, an engineering tour de force. And you've got to make a vacuum system that has no leaks. All right, all right, and the atmospheric pressure is about one ten billionth, uh, uh, or the pressure is about one ten billionth of the atmosphere. So, so this is really a, 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 a heroic vacuum system. I believe I'm not 100% certain, but I believe it is certainly one of the largest high vacuum systems in the world. And of course, we have this at both observatories. Now, you'll notice that there are covers here. These covers are made of uh, thick concrete, about six inches in diameter. And they're there for a very important reason. They protect the vacuum uh, tube, the beam tube, from, from nature, from weather. But they also protect it from human beings. Uh, all right, so this is a, 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 a person 
who was working at Hanford. He's actually a patrolman at Hanford, and he, for some reason he was driving through uh, the observatory in, over the Hanford range with his lights off and collided with the beam tube. He, he, he was injured. Uh, the car was totaled, but our, but our, uh, our vacuum system survived. All right. So, 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 all right, so I hope I've given you at least a sense, you know, if not the details of, of how, we, how we make this technology work and how we make these detections. Now what I want to talk about are, are really what I think is the most compelling thing that we've done, and that's make the first gravitational wave detection. So on September uh, 14th, which was a Monday, uh, 2015, I was actually coming to work in the morning. I'd basically do what I always do. I drop my daughter off uh, for, to catch her bus to go to school. And I got into work and I started reading my emails in the morning. And, and I got very interesting emails, one from my deputy director, a gentleman named Albert Lazzarini. And Albert said, you've got to look at this log entry. So we have uh, uh, electronic log books. You know, it's in the old days and people still do write lot, you know, lab notes like this. Well, we do it electronically. And he's pointed to this log book where there was a plot and the plot actually was, and I'll show you what that plot looked like in a second, was what was, looked like the most stunning signal I'd ever seen because it looked like it was a real gravitational wave. Uh, it took us about a day, maybe a little bit less than that, to convince ourselves that we were on to something very, very interesting. And it took us five months from the time we first saw the event on September 14th to the time we announced to the world that was in February of uh, 2016 about the event. In the end, after a huge amount of work by a lot of people, we were able to extract the waveforms. And I want to I show these waveforms because I think they're going to be actually iconic. So, so what you are looking at here is basically the squiggle pattern from that interferometer diagram that I showed you, that movie that I showed you before, this is actually what it looked like. And, and you might go, well, that looks like kind of noise. But there's features in there that are actually very telling. The first feature that's very telling is you'll see that the, the, the waves are getting bigger as time goes on. And the second feature is that the wavelength is changing, so it's getting shorter. The frequency is getting higher. And then at some point, it just dies. The, the waves go back to noise. So this is sort of the noise level in the instrument. And so why do we think that's interesting? Because it, it's exactly what I showed you before. When you have these orbiting black holes or these orbiting neutron stars, and we didn't know they were black holes at this point, although we were pretty... We were, we had suggestions and hints. Anyway, the, the black holes are orbiting around one another, and as they get closer and closer, the frequency gets higher, the amplitude of the wave gets higher, and then they crash and merge into each other. Now, you'll also notice that the, uh, the, the signal at Livingston doesn't exactly look like at the signal at Hanford, and it shouldn't for a couple of reasons. But the most important thing I'll point out is that the signal at Livingston came in about seven milliseconds earlier than the signal at Hanford. And you might say, why is that important? Well, the physical reason that's important is because it tells you something about the direction of the gravitational wave, where it came from. But the real reason it's important comes from the people at Livingston themselves because they can claim that they detected gravitational waves before Hanford. <laughs> and I can tell you that there's a lot of intersite competition between Hanford and Livingston, so Livingston is very proud of themselves. Okay, so... Uh, Remember I said we're making these tiny, tiny measurements? Well, here's how tiny. So this, this, the amplitude of this signal was 4 times 10 to the minus 18 meters. All right, 4 times 10 to the minus 18 meters. That's quite small. Okay, so what did we actually see? Well, this is the signal that I saw on uh, 
14th. You see that the, the, this is time here, so this is a half a second to a second. So this whole thing is over in literally half a second, two-tenths of a second. Uh, this is frequency. These are, these are things we call them spectrograms. You're plotting frequency against time. And you heard, let me go back again because I think it's worth hearing again. You hear that thump? What is that thump? That thump is the recording that the interferometer made of the space-time stretching and compressing as the gravitational wave passes. So what we've done here is it literally made a, an audio recording of two black holes colliding, generating a gravitational wave, sending it to us, and measuring it on our interferometer. Now that thump is not very impressive. So I'm going to do something to the thump. I'm going to actually put four, 400 hertz on it. I'm going to shift it up in frequency so that it's more tuned to our ears. That whoop, whoop, that's called a chirp. All right? And it is the hallmark signature of two big, massive objects that are coming together, colliding, and merging into one object. And it's, you know, if I were these two black holes, I'd be kind of, you know, embarrassed by the fact that, you know, I'm these big black holes that collide together and all I do is go whoop. They, they shouldn't be embarrassed. Now, now, you can get a huge amount of information out of these waves, all right? And we, we have a lot of people that work on trying from that data to tell us what we actually saw. And here's what we saw, all right? So the event that produced that gravitational wave was produced by the collision of two black holes, one of them about 36 times the mass of the sun, all right, and 210 kilometers in diameter. So this is what, maybe about the size, maybe a little smaller than New South Wales. All right, so these are very massive compact objects. And they're black holes. And I should point out, here's a 30-second digression on what a black hole is. A black hole is actually a very simple entity. It's, pre it's pre uh, predicted by general relativity. Black holes have only three or really two fundamental quantities associated with them, their mass, their angular momentum, the spin of the black hole, and charge. It turns out that these black holes, we don't believe, have any charge. Nothing else matters. So there's, no, there's no matter in them, all right? We don't know. They lose their identity. Uh, the blackness that you see there is basically the event horizon. If you are inside the event horizon of a black hole, Good night, you're done, because you're, you're never getting out again. The gravitational attraction, the warping of space-time below the black hole, uh, beneath that event horizon, is so sharp that, that light itself cannot escape. All right, so that's, that's behind the event horizon, you, you are done. All right, second black hole. Not quite as big, but still quite big. 20 time, 29 times the mass of the sun, 170 kilometers in diameter. And what I'm going to show you here all right, is actually not a Hollywood movie. It is actually a real simulation, that equation that I showed you at the beginning, that general relativity field equation, the G-mu-nu equation. You can solve that equation. You can't do it analytically with your brain and pen and paper. You have to do it on a computer. But you can solve that equation on a computer and actually map out the orbital structure of this. So I'm going to show you a simulation, a movie that was done by these uh, very, very smart guys at uh, uh, Cornell. They work with uh, collaboration between Caltech and Cornell. And the movie is going to be slowed down a thousand times. Now, you see in the background stars. The stars are purely there just so you have a reference frame to be able to see what the black holes are actually doing. So this is sort of the final ballet of these black holes. Here we go. So they're spinning around one another. You'll see that the space is warping as they move because the 
geometry is changing. It's dynamic due to the gravitational waves, or I'm sorry, due to the, the masses that are there. They're getting closer and closer together. All right, you'll see that uh, as they get closer and closer together, eventually their event horizons will touch. Boom, there we go. And you see that massive sort of wiggle. So that massive sort of wiggle is the, the final blast of gravitational waves that comes off here. All right, so a couple of physical parameters which hopefully will get you sort of a sense of how amazing this was. So at the time when their event horizons touched, when they came closer together, each of these black holes was moving at about half the speed of light. All right, so th these are extremely, extremely fast, extremely relativistic events. All right, the final black hole, the one you see there, is 62 solar masses, all right? And we know that from the wave, from extracting the information from the wave. Now, if you do the math, you can say, well, you started with a 36 and a 29, that equals 65, and you're left with a 62 solar mass black hole, so what happened to three solar masses? The answer is it turned into gravitational waves. So that final burst that you saw there was three solar masses being converted into gravitational wave in two tenths of a second. All right, so just try and get your head around that. That's a mind-boggling number. And you can actually then from that calculate a luminosity or a power. So you can say how bright are these, are these black holes. And the answer is uh, the number might not mean much to you. It's 3 times 10 to, the 10 to the 56 ergs per second. What does that mean? Well, you can compare that to the total luminosity of the universe in the electromagnetic band. In other words, all of the light that's produced by the universe on a given day, all right, a given quiet day, or a given quiet period of time. These events were 30, 20 to 30 times brighter than that. So, so in terms of power, the power output was 30 times the entire power output of the electromagnetic universe. All right, so kind of cataclysmic. And, and again, all we heard on Earth was this little whoop. So, okay, all right. So this is remarkable. And it was remarkable not because we saw one, because when you see one, you're like, well, maybe we got lucky. But in fact, we actually saw a second black hole that was confirmed, and we saw a third one that looked interesting. We have this statistical way of analyzing the data, and we weren't confident enough. We're very conservative in this business. We weren't confident enough to say that we saw uh, a third one, but most people, including myself, believe that this was actually a, a black hole merger too. So we saw three of these binary black hole mergers, and this was quite remarkable because up until this point, not only had nobody ever directly detected a gravitational wave, but nobody had ever directly seen, observed, heard, whatever uh, verb you want to use, uh, two black holes that were locked in binary orbit and then colliding with one another. So this was a remarkable astrophysical discovery in its own right. Okay. Uh, so this, this had a big impact, uh, and, and uh, the day we made the announcement, the next day and the next few weeks, there were a number of uh, newspaper stories that were written, and a number of cartoons that came out, and this one was one of my favorites. All right, uh, so this came out in the Guardian newspaper, and this was just one panel of the newspaper. So it said, oh, I, I love cartoonists, they can come up with everything. Uh, obviously we can't see these waves, the only way we know they're real is by using another extremely sensitive device which detects scientists having feelings of excitement. <laughs> All right. So it says, you can, we can see here in this diagram which scientist has just found a gravitational wave. That's that guy right there. All right. But obviously this guy is excited because he's had a cheese salad sandwich. I don't know what that is, but must must be pretty, pretty good. Uh, fun fact, this I love. 
scientists' emotional reactions are also the fraction of a width of a proton. <laughs> I, I can assure you that that was not the case. After we, after, after we, made our, after we convinced ourselves that we were going to go public, there was a lot of hugging uh, in the collaboration. All right. Uh, three weeks after the announcement, this came on. You can now buy gravitational wave fashions. Right? <laughs> this is a dress that's made by a company in the Bay Area where she took the gravitational wave signals uh, and turned them into a really nice dress, actually. And it, you in the front row might also see that they sell ties. So I, I have my own gravitational wave tie. In New York City, they can turn anything into an ad campaign. So on the metro in New York City uh, in March, this came out. Scientists found gravitational waves in outer space. If only it were that easy to find an apartment in New York City with a walk-in closet. Now, I've never lived in New York City, but if it's really that hard to find an apartment with a walk-in closet, I don't want to live in New York City. All right. I don't know if this show gets to you uh, here in Australia. I suspect it does, but, but this is an iconic show in the United States. This is Sheldon Cooper, The Big Bang. Probably this next gentleman you might know. Uh, this is Cameron McAvoy who is a world champion swimmer. He's a, he's a physics major, I actually learned, uh, at uh, Griffiths University. And in the Olympic trials last year, he had a specially made cap with a gravitational wave on it. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. Okay, uh, so, so, so the last thing I want to talk about, all right, I've, you know, I've sort of told you what's happened in the past, but I now want to look forward. Because a lot of people can think to themselves, well, this is great. They did this great experiment. They made this really you know, incredibly precise detector. They made this really amazing measurement. They saw these black holes. Great. Let's go home. No, 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 no. This, this is the future of astronomy, or one of the futures of astronomy. What we want to do is a new kind of astronomy, gravitational wave astronomy. And let me just point out that everything we know about the universe comes from really four sort of fundamental windows. One is electromagnetic astronomy, all right, which uh, Australia has a very, very rich history of, radio, optical telescopes. Uh, also, subatomic particles. We build these huge colliders, and we collide particles together at the speed of nearly the speed of light and produce uh, uh, ever and ever finer particles at ever higher energies that tell us about the nature of the microscopic universe. Uh, neutrinos are a very important but probably less uh, well-known part of the uh, fundamental winners on, windows on the universe. Uh, they are very interesting particles that have no charge. They're, they're almost massless, but they carry a lot of information with them. For example, supernovas. Uh, and then finally, cosmic rays, actually. And there's a telescope that you see there. It's the Auger telescope in, uh, I think it's in Argentina or Chile, uh, where uh, uh, they look for high-energy cosmic rays that come from cataclysmic astrophysical processes. All right. Gravitational waves are fundamentally different from all of this. So in some sense, we've opened the fifth window, if you will, on the universe. Um, how do we know about black holes up until now? Let's forget about LIGO for the next 20 seconds. All right, the reason we know about black holes, first of all, theoretically, they've been studied uh, very, very intensely and thoroughly, and you know a lot just from the theory of black holes. But experimentally, the way you study them, the way you have studied them, is by looking at uh, uh, the universe in x-rays. So this would be electromagnetic astronomy. And it turns out that a lot of, well, all the black holes that we know about come in binary systems. So they form where there's a star, actually two stars. One of the stars goes supernova, and what's left behind is massive enough to actually collapse into a black hole. 
And as, if the stars are close together, if one of the star, as it ages, it starts puffing up. And eventually it gets to the point where the gravitational attraction from the black hole will start accreting matter. So you can think of the black hole as being a vampire and just sort of sucking the stellar material out of the companion star. All right? Because its gravitational attraction is, is strong and the matter accelerates, it heats up, it produces light, it produces x-rays. So as the, uh, uh, the stellar matter is infalling into the black hole, which is spinning, and that's, by the way, why the, the matter here is spinning, all right, it's producing copious quantities of x-rays. And so x-ray astronomers all right, have, in some sense, been the, 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 the astronomy group that's told us the most about uh, um, black holes. All right, so here's what we know about all the black holes in our galaxy that have been studied. The x-ray astronomers look mostly for galactic black holes. This is mass, all right, so this is in units of sun's mass, solar mass. And this is all of the, the known uh, black holes from x-ray astronomy. And you can see a couple of interesting things. There's first of all about 25 of them, a little less. So we don't know a lot about it. I mean, these are the only black holes that we've known about, all right? Uh, and they're all sort of in the sort of five to maybe 20 solar mass range. All right, here comes LIGO. Now, when LIGO detects a black hole, uh, we get bonus, right? Because we actually detect three. We get the two black holes that were doing this dance of death, and then they collide, and we get a final black hole. And that final black hole, we can also measure the parameters of. So every time we get a detection, we get to see three of these things. So here's our six and maybe even nine. That's that, that one that I said is probably a black hole. All right. Now, you, you look at that and you see something interesting. First of all, you see that our black holes tend to be more massive. That actually has some astrophysical implications that I won't talk about. But here's the thing that you should take away. This is about 40 years worth of x-ray astronomy. So it took 40 years of very hard work by a lot of talented and smart x-ray astronomers to find these black holes. This is four months of gravitational wave astronomy. So it took us four months of running our detector uh, at not even where we want it to be in terms of sensitivity to see these uh, uh, black holes. So LIGO may provide a unique window, certainly to these binary systems. So it's going to provide a new kind of uh, a tool for studying black holes. More importantly, we can do something called multi-messenger astronomy. And this is, it's not going to get too complex, but, but this, this is really important that Anytime you can turn a new tool on, on a phenomenon that you're trying to study, like when Galileo looked you know, with his telescope, all right, he opened a new window on the universe. Well, we think we're doing that too, but there's nothing that prevents us from looking not just in gravitational waves, but also in optical, uh, infrared light, radio waves, neutrinos, x-rays, gamma rays. So we can sort of get all of these windows on the universe, all right, that we study the universe to look at a specific event. And now we're back to the neutron stars. So remember I started at the beginning by saying that, that we have these sort of 1.4 solar mass neutron stars that can collide. When they go off, they go off with a bang. And the reason they go off with a bang is there's matter, all right? So these neutron stars are ultra-rich and ultra-dense, right? And when they collide, they produce, they should produce everything. They produce gamma rays, they should produce radio waves, they should produce optical signals and stuff like that. So they not only produce gravitational waves, they produce lots of other things, maybe neutrinos, high-energy neutrinos that we can study. So if you can capture one of these things going off, all right, in the, uh, uh, sort of in the act with gravitational waves, and then look at that with other kinds of astro astronomy, you might be able to learn something important. And I'll point out why, why should you care about this. 
So I, I would venture a guess that most people in the room are wearing some kind of jewelry. Uh, so I have a gold wedding ring on that I'm wearing. This gold wedding ring was most likely produced in the collision of two neutron stars because the, the processes that generate heavy elements for supernovas don't necessarily, we believe, it's not definitive yet, but we believe that they don't have enough energy to produce heavy elements. So to get elements like gold and silver and platinum, you need these R processes events that happens in supernovas, sorry, that happens in neutron star collision. So this is important stuff. Okay, all right, so how do you do this? All right, well, the way you do this is you use multiple interferometers. So it turns out one interferometer, I, when I said at the beginning, I said there was reason for multiple interferometers, this is one of them. All right, you want to be able to see the signal with multiple uh, uh, detectors. And the reason you want to do that is because you want to triangulate on that detector. So if we can time the arrival of the waves, we get a time difference between multiple detectors. That allows us to triangulate on the signal. All right, and if we can do that quickly, we can send uh, a we call it a telegram, an alert to our partners who run astronomical telescopes, who run X-ray telescopes, and say, hey, you should look in that direction. Look over there, because you may see the optical counterpart or the electromagnetic counterpart of what we've seen. All right, that all sounds well and good, but there's a problem. And the problem is that you need a network of detectors, and so we're building a network of detectors. But even if you have a network of detectors, all right, the more you have, the more precise the localization is. So let me just give you a sense of this. Um, so you pretend you're at the center of the sphere. All right, these are the three gravitational wave uh, events that I talked about earlier. This is the Milky Way galaxy. And what these contours are, the outermost contour, is the level of confidence that we have, in this case 90%, that the event came from this location. And you might look at that and go, well, that's not really very localized. And, and you're right, it isn't very localized. About 2,000 moons can fit into that point right there. All right, so, so, so it's a challenge for gravitational wave detectors to do that localization. And the way you get around that challenge is you bring more on. This was just two LIGO detectors, all right? If we bring three detectors, we can do a little bit better. This is a simulation. This is not real data. You can see that, so these, these little blue ellipses here, we call them error boxes. They're basically the precision with which you can localize a, a, a position in the sky from a given gravitational wave event. All right, and you can see we do pretty good in some places over here. We do poorly in other places. All right, if you bring just one more detector, if I get four interferometers working, the sky map cleans up quite a bit. And this is actually something that will become very interesting because most uh, telescopes have the capability of probing these kinds of error boxes. So this is something that we expect to happen in the next five to 10 years. So I think this is one of the next big things that's gonna happen with gravitational waves. It's not just about detecting black holes, but it's about doing astronomy with uh, electromagnetic telescopes. All right, uh, I'm gonna close with two things. First of all, much like electromagnetic astronomy, gravitational wave astronomy comes with its own wavelength spectrum. So if you think about uh, electromagnetic waves, you've got at the very high end, you've got gamma rays, then you've got x-rays, then you've got UV, ultraviolet, visible light, infrared, stepping down through infrared radio, et cetera. All right? And each of those wavelengths tells you something interesting. It gives you a piece of information about the object you're looking at the sky. Same thing is true for gravitational waves. All right? Gravitational waves come in all wavelengths, ranging from the wavelengths that we see, which are measured in hundreds and maybe thousands of kilometers, 
all right, all the way to wavelengths that have the span of the universe. All right? And there are different detectors that are trying to detect them. And each one of those detectors is going to be looking at a different class of gravitational wave sources. So I've told you about LIGO, what we're after. Uh, there is a project that will hopefully launch at the end of the next decade called LISA, Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. The LISA project will detect gravitational waves by going out into space and making arms that are 5 million kilometers in length. And it will look for massive black holes, much more massive than we uh, are capable of detecting with LIGO. It will look for phase transitions in the early universe. Right? You can even get longer wavelengths that are decades to years. There's radio telescopes. In fact, and uh, this is something that, that the Australia uh, radio telescope groups are, are very much involved and in actually leading right now, I would say. Uh, basically looking for supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. When they collide, they'll produce gravitational waves, and they will tell us something about galaxy dynamics and collisions. And then even the Big Bang itself, all right, at the moment of the birth of the universe, produce gravitational waves. And if we could see that, we would be able to probe the universe, the birth of the universe, in a unique way. And this is really, really quite exciting. So, so I think the take-home message that I want to give here tonight is that you're, you, we're privileged, and I'm privileged to be part of a field that's just getting started and I think is going to have very, very interesting and exciting results over the next uh, 50, 100 years. Last thing I'll say is to, to emphasize the important role that Australia plays. And uh, you are fortunate in that you have a, a rather visionary scientific uh, 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 funding agency here. And just recently there was an Australian Research Council Center of Excellence funded with the name, I love the name, OSGRAV. All right? And you'll recognize that waveform right there. That's our gravitational wave. Uh, and all of these universities have played a, a very key role in different aspects of what I've told you about with LIGO. So in developing of the instrumentation, uh, a number of scientists from Australian National University, from Adelaide, uh, University of Adelaide, came over and uh, made key contributions to building our detector. Uh, in data analysis, uh, Australia leads one of the efforts to look for gravitational waves from neutron stars and pulsars. Uh, also, uh, in looking for these radio, the, using radio telescopes to look for long wavelength rays, and then in understanding the astrophysics. And it ties into something else that's going on here, which is the square kilometer array. So Australia is really poised, I think, to play a very important and unique role in the field. So I'm going to stop there by just saying that we're back online. LIGO started operating at the end of last year, November 30th. Uh, we're looking at our data carefully, and uh, we hope to say something soon, so stay tuned. Thank you very much.